I'm David Flynn. This is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm delighted that our guest today is Adam Crichton, who is the Washington correspondent of The Australian and has a, an extraordinarily rich background, particularly in economics and, uh, of course, in journalism. And uh, welcome. welcome. Thanks for having me, David. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And... As we're recording, it's, uh, it's happening, isn't it, that uh, the former Indeed. president is being arrested. What is your assessment of all this? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's somewhat depressing, I mean, to observe. I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously very humiliating for Donald Trump to have his mugshot released. Literally, it was just released about 20 minutes uh, before we started speaking. So it's, uh, you know, flying around the world right now. Everyone's looking at it. It's a somewhat unusual picture. Uh, you know, he's, he, his face looks a bit shrunken and smaller than normal, I think. But anyway, leave it up to your uh, viewers to to make their own conclusions. But, I mean, the broader point is it's, uh, you know, I think it was intended as a humiliation of, of a former president by by senior Democrats, Democrat prosecutors who are, you know, using are stretching the law as much as they can to ensnare uh, who is effectively uh, the opposition leader at the moment in the United States. And and this is something we've never seen happen in uh, US history. I mean, I was just thinking earlier, I think during the Civil War or the after, uh, aftermath of the Civil War that the Abraham Lincoln pardoned all of the all the Southern generals, as far as I know, and, and you know, wouldn't uh, prosecute in the interest of national cohesion. And I just think that, you know, that's a good lesson. Um, uh, for all times, uh, but and yeah, you know, the same of course with Nixon. Um, more recently, was pardoned, but uh, this time Democrats are choosing a different, uh, you know, a different method or or way of going about things. And you know, I think it could end very badly, actually. Well, this dissent in standards, this use of uh, the judicial system, the politicisation of the judicial system, mm. only will only result in the other side doing the same, won't it? Eventually. Yes, look, I think that's exactly what's going to happen eventually. There'll be uh, there'll be district attorneys in the future, uh, maybe attorneys general, who uh, want to seek vengeance on certain uh, Democrat politicians, and and that will be just as wrong as as this is wrong. Uh, you know, that's I mean, I'm not a lawyer like you, but yeah. I mean, it seems to me that uh, you know all of the underlying laws that these charges are based on, both federal and state were not intended for these uh, sorts of behaviour. Uh, you know, in the, in the federal case, I think one of the laws is the Ku Klux Klan law from the 1860s or 70s. And then, of course, there's the Enron Act from 2002, which was for accounting scandal. Uh, so it seems to me as a layperson that, uh, you know, that the law really is being stretched simply to get Donald Trump and to satisfy uh, the, the, you know, the political needs of the Democrat Party in the short term, but I think in the medium and long term, it, you know, it could come back to bite. And in fact, in fact, even in the short term, I mean, if you look at the opinion polls here in the US, these these indictments have not hurt uh, Donald Trump at all. And, and he's, you know, arguably uh, more popular than he's been for quite a few years. There seems to be an argument that while it will make him popular among the Republicans, will it get the Republicans out to vote? And what will the reaction be of the so-called independents, the people who who, who are not uh, bound to either party who make their decisions when they vote. Yes, well, I mean, you're certainly right. The impact has, has almost exclusively been amongst the Republicans. Uh, I mean, I think there's been a slight lift in support amongst independents. But if you look at his 
his favourability, uh, you know, across all voters in the last three years, uh, the unfavourable rating is about 55 to 60%, and the favourable rating is about 40%, and those figures have not really changed very much at all, uh, looking at all voters. So, I mean, I think if he is the candidate, and that looks that looks increasingly likely uh, for the Republicans, and it's also Joe Biden, uh, then it's going to come down to turnout, and look, that is that is very very hard to predict, especially this you know this so far out. I mean, you know, of course we're all very interested in in, in U.S. elections, but remember the primary is still uh, you know more than four months away. Uh, that hasn't even started yet that process. So, so the election itself is is still quite a long way away, and more than a year. I find the primary system very attractive, and I find the idea of a voluntary voting very attractive. But I certainly don't find the idea of the district attorney being elected attractive. I think that has brought out yes. some very bad matters. We've, uh, we've seen a, a problem in Canberra in the ACT, and we certainly yes. don't want politicised DPPs in Australia, do we? Yes, no, that's a very good point. I mean, I think, I think something that uh, the US could learn maybe from the Australian-English system is that it's much more sensible to split uh, that job of attorney general, you know, w which in the US is is kind of one person, if you like, a, kind of a minister in the government, but also uh, the chief prosecutor. Whereas in Australia, as I understand it, we split those roles. There's a minister, and then there's a professional uh, prosecutor who who is meant to be, and I think broadly is, uh, fairly politically impartial. As you say, in the ACT, that that principle seems to have been transgressed, and that's a source of great embarrassment, I think, for Australia and and its long-standing. Uh, traditions of independent prosecutors but um yes the us i mean that it does strike me as bizarre and the district attorney in in georgia fanny willis uh she's a very strong democrat she's uh, she campaigned to prosecute trump and apparently she's been fundraising off um off this indictment and and her counterpart in New York, Alvin Bragg, is also a very strong Democrat, and he also campaigned to prosecute Donald Trump. Now, I mean, to me, that's that strikes as an abuse of the law, uh, but it's it is American practice, at least in terms of the election of these figures. We've never heard of these people before. They're, now they've become world public figures. I know, I know, it is quite something. And, and, and they're, it, they're not very sorry, great. They're not great people. They're not great lawyers. You can see that. No, look. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I kind of wish that I'd studied uh, law at university a bit over the over the last six months, so I could have had, you know, more profound insights on these various indictments. But but I've read them and you know tried to think about it as a kind of rational person. And you know, my sense is that every single one of them, except the documents case, uh, will be uh, dismissed, will be thrown out eventually at at some level of court. But they're just too ridiculous. It, it relies so much on what uh, Donald Trump was thinking at the time, you know, what was his intent, and that's so hard to prove. Uh, and he still says, and you know, that he believes the election was stolen, and, and he's not the only one. A lot of, you know, I think about a third of Americans believe that. So, you know, I, I guess a third of Americans might be delusional, but um, they do believe it, and they believe he believes it. And so... If he does, then you really are prosecuting someone to some extent for, you know, for their beliefs, and that well, is very problematic. Well, if you look at the, that case that Texas brought in the Supreme Court with a number of other states, I think about 17 states, that wasn't based on actual fraud. That was based on breaches of the Constitution in relation to changes of the electoral law. And the only reason the judges didn't hear it 
was because they said that Texas lacked standing. I, I suspect that part of it was they were afraid of the consequences if yes. they heard it, and not only on not only on the nation but also on themselves. Yes, look, I think that's yeah. I mean that that particular case, you're more across the details of that than me. Um, but but it is true, as I understand it, that that in relation to the allegations of of fraud in 2020, very few of them, if any, were actually seriously considered by courts. Most of them were not even heard in the first place. Uh, you know, my view is that, you know, there was never enough. Yeah, well, sorry, my view is there's always fraud in every election. I mean, it's just a question of extent. Mm. Uh, and, you know, but my also, my, my view also would be that, you know, there just wasn't enough fraud to have made the difference in in that 2020 election. Mm. There, there were millions of votes, uh, difference between the two candidates ultimately. Mm. But, um, but yes, look, uh, uh Regardless of of what the truth actually was, I mean, I think I think prosecuting uh, Trump for this is a big mistake, and and it could come back to backfire. I mean, uh, you know, if there's a recession next year in the US, which may well be the case, and you have a Joe Biden there who can barely speak, and uh, and Trump is a Republican nominee, still articulate, still vigorous, uh, you know, there's every chance he could win again. And uh, when you look at the history of other countries, when you start going downhill in uh, all sorts of political things, as in Spain before the, the last war, you see eventually you provoke the rise of extremism on the other side and it can end in a, an appalling situation. One of, the, one of the things I've seen is a suggestion that uh, every time some, there's some new uh, fact brought out or allegation brought out in relation to the Biden family, some are calling them the Biden <laughs> crime family, and you've yes. written about this, the evidence is money. But when something is brought out, then there's suddenly an indictment and the mainstream media in America, which seem to be captured by one side, much of them, uh, yes. it seems to be a, almost a distraction from something about uh, what Biden did inappropriately when he was uh, uh, vice president. Yes, yes, that's right. No, it, it does uh, shock me, the a relative lack of attention that uh, Biden's alleged misdeeds and, and in some cases not even alleged anymore. I mean, the, 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 you know, the House Oversight Committee has produced all these bank record evidence which shows uh, payments from foreigners in the millions going into these various shell companies that were controlled by his uh, children and, and brother and, and, and uh, you know, various other associates of the family. I mean, there's, there's no evidence yet that the money was going into Joe Biden's personal bank account, but of course there never would be evidence of that. He's not that stupid. <laughs> um, but so, so I think there is a lot of evidence of a wrongdoing there, but uh, which, which I might add has been around for many years. I mean, that, that was the source of, of Donald Trump's phone call to uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine in, in, in 2019. Uh, you know, there's always been a suspicion that uh, Biden got the Ukrainian prosecutor uh, sacked because he was nosing around in, in the Ukrainian company Burisma, which, well, of course, his son sat on, um, the, the board of. Biden boasted of that, didn't he, on television? Indeed, indeed he, he boasted of it. Indeed, he boasted of <laughs> it two years later. Yes. But, uh, and, and, yeah, look, I think there's a lot of smoke there and I think there's going to be at least a little fire, but, it, uh, but because of the press's lack of interest, I think it's going to take a lot longer than it should to come out. Living in a distant province of a vast empire, and that's what it is, <laughs> effectively, we're a voluntary yes. member of that empire, uh, and comparing it with what it was like with Britain, we seem to have a lot of disadvantages. We, in, with the British, the, 
There was a Westminster system, a collective executive rather than a single person executive. Uh, one who can't be got rid of. Impeachment is almost impossible in the United States. That's, I think, been shown by uh, history. Yes. Nixon voluntarily went. I doubt yes. whether he would have been impeached, you know, gone through right to the, right yes, to the Senate. Yes, I don't need to. And uh, the succession is ridiculous. In the, in the British system, when uh, Chamberlain was forced out, uh, they chose a better person, whereas in the American system with the, section, the succession going to the vice president, you could get someone who is potentially worse than the situation. Yes. Uh, well, what, what does that mean for us in, in our distant province? Well, look, I think it's a reminder that for all the virtues of the American system in terms of its you know, formal separation of powers, there, you know, there's still quite a lot to be said for the Westminster system and its, and its flexibility. As you say, the, the uh, government's not vested in a single individual. It's vested in a cabinet uh, and that can be rearranged very quickly without, you know, without any any election or any kind of constitutional issues. And, I, you know, I think you know, it's it's kind of a way that we release pressure, I guess, uh, political pressure in Australia and, and, and the UK, as we've seen uh, there in recent years with their kind of, you know, whirlwind of prime ministers. But, you know, when you can criticise that, and people do, but, you know, that, that may well be a better situation than, than in the United States when you're stuck potentially with a president who, you know, is almost incoherent sometimes. I mean, maybe that's that's too harsh, but... Uh, and the Democrats are in this position now that they can't, you know, he can't step down because then Kamala Harris becomes the mm. president. She's the state, if you like, the embodiment of the executive. And, uh, you know, she's widely perceived as not, you know, not particularly effective either and certainly and even less popular than, mm. than President Biden. So, and so yes, look, at his, you know, I think, I think mm. you make good points. I think any system can be gamed. I, I like the primaries, but the... The Democrats have worked out how to rig the primaries, haven't they? Well, look, I don't know enough about the ins and outs, but they, they each have their kind of respective party rules. But, I mean, I think it's disappointing that next year there's going to be no Democratic primary effectively. There's going to be no debates. I mean, mm. there are two uh, uh, challenges to Joe Biden. Um, Robert F. Kennedy, who actually I quite admire, I think he's, mm. I think he's quite good, he, controversial, but I think he's... He's very intelligent. And then um, another lady, Marianne Williamson, and, you know, they're each polling pretty well. I mean, if you look at their polls, and they're largely ignored by the media here, uh, they're each about 10% or, or you know, maybe uh, maybe RFK is 12 and, and she's 5 and 6. But then again, if you look at the Republican field, that's you know, those figures are much greater than your Chris Christie's and your Tim Scott's and these people who are, you know, barely more than 1%. Um, so my point is the challenges uh, to Biden, uh, despite their being ignored or derided by the media, are actually doing quite well. An important thing will be getting these impeachment, these uh, these indictments for Trump, for example. Trump getting those indictments out of a state court and into the Supreme Court. And Meadows, I think, is doing that. He's trying to do that, isn't he? Trying to make it a federal yes. matter. Once it becomes a federal matter, then if Trump wins the election, he can pardon himself, can't he? Yes, yes, that's the problem. The, um, apparently Georgia is one of only five states where, where the governor does not have the power of pardon. And, I mean, you'd imagine Brian Kemp, the Republican governor there, probably would pardon uh, Trump, um, you know, despite their, their issues over over the years. But uh, yes, you're right. Uh, there is an effort to transfer this case to the federal system. And and I was just reading today, I think 154 of the uh, of the acts, of the alleged criminal acts that Trump was uh, supposed to have enacted, 
they occurred while he was president and only a, a small, very small number, uh, three or four, I think, uh, occurred after he was president. So so the case being made is that, you know, this is really a federal issue. It should be in the federal court system. And, you know, we'll see how that how that goes. I mean, it's interesting. One of the 19 uh, so-called co-conspirators uh, has uh, used a Georgia law, which says you can have a very speedy trial to insist on an October trial, which is very, very soon. <laughs> Um, so there's some discussion about whether the various co-conspirators will be split apart in terms of their treatment. Uh, this is all getting a bit kind of beyond me now in terms of the law, but uh, that that's you know that could be interesting too. Yes. Well, uh, we we you have uh, in the United States uh, uh, a president who is doing the sorts of things which led to the Stuart kings losing their heads and losing their thrones. He's he's ignoring the law. For example, the law in relation to immigration. He just goes along and makes it up uh, and he's not punished for that because the, the the bodies that could deal with him through an impeachment are under his control. Yes. Well, what um, You're talking about the southern border. Yes, the southern border. And, and what he's doing is really he's ignoring the immigration law of the United States and letting vast numbers of people come into the United States. Yes, no, that is true. But it is an outrage. The, I mean, the... Figures are just astonishing. I can't, yes. I can't, rem I can't kind of remember them yes. precisely. But you know, millions of people have crossed that border in just a very sh a small number of years who shouldn't have. Yes. Uh, you know, that, it's just it, it is just staggering. I mean, just in terms of the law, I think you know the problem in our Western societies generally is that we just produce so many laws that that so many of them are just automatically broken yes. <laughs> because they can't all be. Um, maintained and i think what that leads to is a disrespect of the law in general uh and it and also the complexity of the law is so enormous that no one really knows when they're breaking the law or not uh i, I mean these these cases with trump are a very good example i'm you know i'm pretty sure these these uh you know so so-called conspirators have no idea that they were they were breaking this racketeering law say in georgia uh some obscure law that had never been used for this before but you know, there you go uh the law is there and it can be abused by, by prosecutors when they want to. Adam, you've been very generous with us and I know you're very busy because of what's happening at <laughs> the present time. Yes, thank you. But I mustn't uh, delay you from fulfilling your fundamental duty, which is reporting to <laughs> yes. the Australian people through that marvellous newspaper, The Australian, yes. about what's happening. So I must, unfortunately, I must let you go. And, yes, well, thank you, David. It's always a pleasure to speak. And thank you so much. It was very interesting. You have your columns are a must-read for Australians, oh, and I think oh, for you. Americans too, because you give a percept, you give a, a view of the American situation, which they're probably not getting in most of the American media, yes. unfortunately, which yes. is extraordinary. Yes. Well, thank you <laughs> yes, again. Well, and I'm, uh, I'm David Flint. This is ADH-TV, and save the nation until next time. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I speak to you as a permatanned Indonesian-born blow-in. And you might ask, how do I know I'm a permatanned Indonesian-born blow-in? It came as a result of the Republic referendum. And one of the Republican organizations decided they would have a go at me and they'd, they'd uh, denigrate me. They would attack me. They exercised their freedom of speech in a, an unpleasant way. Permatant Indonesian born blowing. 
I wasn't born in Indonesia, but my grandfather was born in the Dutch East Indies. And he wanted to become a farmer. He lived in the Dutch East Indies, did his professional practice there, then came to Australia with his family, decided to become a farmer and bought a farm outside of Sydney. And uh, the money wasn't coming quickly enough from uh, Batavia, which is now Jakarta. He wanted to get, he started his farm, but he wanted to get his produce to the market in Blacktown, which is now Sydney suburb. So he arranged with the lady next door if she could take him with his, the things he produced that week in her sulky, her horse in sulky into Blacktown. The interesting thing was, they were the farmers next door. The interesting thing was, she was an Aborigine. There were lots of Aborigines there, my mother told me. She said that uh, when she went to school there, there were Aboriginal boys and girls in the class. They were treated equally. There was this family next door who were Aboriginal. And it's interesting, even at that time, which was just around the First World War, Aboriginal people were being treated equally near Sydney. Later, when I did law, and I was nearing the end of the degree, I'd been told that there was a need for some assistance to the Aboriginal people in legal matters. And the Dean of Law at the University of New South Wales, which has now apparently got a big yes on the, in the name of the University of New South Wales, the Dean, who was a, he'd been a QC in Sydney, he, uh, he started the Aboriginal Legal Service, a purely voluntary organisation, not a government organisation, and a few of us uh, volunteered to work in relation to matters at, out at La Perouse and also in relation to court matters, appearing for people who needed legal representation in court. There we were, we couldn't do what young lawyers can do today. We couldn't go to welcome ceremonies and we couldn't wave a flag which was recently invented, but we tried to do some helpful things. I'm saying all of that and I'm telling you that because those of us who strongly oppose this referendum on the basis that people should not be distinguished according to their race, they should be judged according to their qualities and not the color of their skin, those who do this are being treated as racists and it's being suggested that we have no interest at all in the treatment of the Aboriginal people. Important thing to remember, I think, is back in 67, and just before that in 65, when Menzies drafted the first referendum, he was strongly opposed to the power to make laws with respect to the Aboriginal people being handed over to the Commonwealth. Menzies said, and I have witnesses at the time, but also it emerges in the speeches he made when he introduced the bill for the referendum. He believed that if the Commonwealth, if Canberra took over legislating with respect to the Aboriginal people, it would lead to a enormous, an enormous bureaucracy based in Canberra, which would do nothing. His view was it should be left to the states 
And if you wanted the states to do things which was helpful to the Aboriginal people and they weren't doing it, you could always use the power to make grants to the states on condition. But when Menzies, when Menzies retired, Holt reintroduced the bill, it had lapsed, this is the bill for the referendum, but he gave in to Whitlam, who was the leader of the opposition, and Whitlam wanted the Commonwealth to get that power because he would soon himself be in power as Prime Minister and could use that power. And that has led to all of the problems. Holt, when he was in office, appointed Nugget Coombs, who was the central banker, who was obsessed with segregating the Aboriginal people so they could really develop. Before that, Menzies and Sir Paul Hasluck pushed the policy of integration. If you integrate people fully, they called it assimilation in those days, if you integrated them rather than segregating them, if you saw that all, all of the people of Australia, including the Aboriginal people, had exactly the same rights and obligations, that this would produce the result where there would be no gap the definition of uh, insanity is said to be, according to Einstein, the definition of insanity is said to be doing the same thing over and over and expecting to get a different result. The Voice is the worst and latest example of this. They're doing the same thing over and over, segregating people, making them, as Whitlam decided, making them welfare dependent, giving them what the witty Aboriginal people called sit-down money. And it's going over and over. This is the latest, but this one, this voice, will make this country ungovernable. Any good lawyer could tell you that. So on that, I, I think I've introduced myself, and I'll uh, allow for some questions. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, there are difficulties in getting, getting what I wanted to give to you onto the screen. And what it is, is trying to state in a formal sense so that it could be something which could be used as representing the views of this conference. And I wanted to do it in such a way that it would be historically accurate, that it would be legally correct and constitutionally correct. And it's grandiosely called the Brisbane Declaration. <laughs> and what I'm going to suggest, since it can't be put up, time is running out, and what I would just do is tell you a little bit about it. It will be put up on the, on the site of the party. You'll be able to comment on it and then a decision will be taken by James and uh, others, the, the, the heads of the party, in deciding whether it should be the record, the record of the conference and then used. It will be something which could be held out as the record of this conference and something which uh, states what is the general view. So it will be Brisbane Declaration, I won't read it all, a declaration affirming freedom of speech and enhancing democracy,
It begins, We citizens of Australia assembled in the city of Brisbane and joining online from across the Commonwealth and beyond, concerned by increasing restrictions, extending to collusion with some in the social media and proposals for further restrictions, then it goes on and specifically refers to the legislation we've all been considering. And we refer also, because this, the party has been concerned about this, concerned by the unjustified suspension of much of our long-enjoyed system of traditional constitutional government during, under the cover of COVID. Then there are a number of clauses going back to recalling the achievements of this country, particularly in relation to federation. Not many Australians realise that federation was an extraordinary achievement, that after the very first nominated convention, when the constitution was sent back to the colonial parliaments, the politicians decided to look at it again. They were all bickering and fighting among themselves. And the whole thing broke down and there was a general view that federation would never be achieved, that we would be today six countries. There was then a conference at Korowa in Victoria, a conference of people particularly interested in the issue. And at the end of the conference, a man who should be known by every school child in Australia, Sir John Quick, moved a motion which was that in future, the next convention, rather than being nominated, should be elected, and that the decisions of the conference, the convention, after, after widespread consultation with the politicians and with the public, should then be referred to the people in each of the states by way of a referendum. And that, in fact, is what happened. It was quite extraordinary. Once they, the politicians started to adopt what was decided at Korowa, and Korowa was in 1893, they really effected it in 1897. In 1897, elections were held in a number of states, not all states, but sufficient states to get together. And another convention was held in 1897. It met in Sydney, in, uh, in uh, Adelaide and Melbourne, I think, and came to a draft constitution that was sent to all of the colonial parliaments. Referendums were held in all states. There had to be two in New South Wales because the New South Welsh were sufficiently recalcitrant, as you might think they often are and a second referendum had to be held in New South Wales. They, they required a few changes. That went through. Western Australia didn't have its referendum. The premiers then took the constitution to London because that was where the legal authority was. With a few amendments, it was put through the British Parliament with authority to the Queen, Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria to unite all the colonies by a proclamation once any results came in from Western Australia. Results did come in from Western Australia and they approved of the constitution. It was uh, then presented to the Queen at Balmoral and she signed a proclamation ordering that the, or agreeing that the colonies be united in a federal commonwealth. 
Our, our constitution is said to be rather boring, but the, the preamble to the constitution is the best part of it in terms of it being a stirring document because it says, we, the peoples of the several states, that list the states, humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God. That was, in consultations, that was the part which had the strongest support throughout this continent. Humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in an indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown and under this constitution. That's the beginning, and it is very fine words. The rest of it is very lawyer-like and not very exciting. But that part does at least say something rather stimulating. That was adopted. The Queen ordered, after consultation with the Premiers, that the new country, this new Commonwealth, this new federal Commonwealth, be formed on the first day of the new century, the first day of the new year, the 1st of January, 1901. An extraordinary development. The really amazing thing about this is that this was the first constitution in the world, even before the Swiss, which was approved by referendum by the people. Even the American constitution wasn't approved by the people. The people played a very significant role. And uh, it was done in four years. In my state, we can't put a tram track down George Street <laughs> in four years. Try and build a dam in four years. Wasn't that remarkable that Australians did this and produced this wonderful document? To an extent, it's been damaged by judges and politicians, but it is a very sound document. What, what uh, I'm suggesting in this Brisbane Declaration is that you recognise this and that you then, uh, you then call on the politicians not to approve of this outrageous document, this bill that they are talking of, for the government to withdraw it and not proceed with it, but to do some other things which are consistent with the constitution of your party, and that is why not complete our democracy? We've got a representative democracy. What we could do, and the Premier of South Australia wanted to do this, but he was talked out of it by Deakin on the grounds that responsible government, that is the lower house deciding who should be the government of the day, would achieve the same thing. Because it doesn't, because the two major parties have stopped responsible government because, for example, the Labour Party, members of the Labour Party can't, as we heard, cross the floor. They're not free to make decisions which they should be making. This is something which is in the Constitution and the agenda of One Nation, and that is that we should proceed to being like the Swiss. That is, giving the people the power to introduce legislation, to vote on legislation, and to make changes which they wish to make, to repeal legislation if they wish. That form of direct democracy which occurs in Switzerland keeps the politicians under control. Every, every uh, quarter in Switzerland, 
people receive proposals for changes in the federal, state, and municipal uh, arrangements and laws. It's a very democratic system, and it would be the one way to control our politicians. It's something that Pauline speaks often about and strongly about. It's something which is very close to her heart. So that's there. The second thing is, given the magnificent role the people of Australia had in developing the Constitution and approving of it, it's extraordinary that in all that time, in, what is it, 120, over 120 years, there hasn't been a review of the Constitution by the people. There have been four reviews by teams of eminent lawyers and politicians and people like that, royal commissions, so-called conventions and so on. They weren't conventions. But the people have not had a chance to look at their constitution and to say, look, we don't like what's happened here. We would like to change that and put that to the people by way of, of referendums. Why not have a convention to do that? So that's also in the document. And uh, that would be essential, the essential parts of the document, which I won't read to you because we don't have time, but it will be up on the One Nation website. Comments can be made there. And if it's then approved, it will then go down as the Brisbane Declaration, the record of what happened here and what, uh, what was the, the wish of those present. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Professor Flint and Dr Alder. Let's get straight to it to save a bit of time. I'll start with Professor Flint, if you don't mind. Why don't we have an express guarantee of freedom of speech in the Constitution as in the American Constitution? Well, of course we should, but I think we have to remember their different histories. And after the War of Independence, you had, in effect, 13 republics. The states operated virtually separately. They had a loose arrangement. And at Philadelphia, they had discussions about creating the United States of America, forming something which is completely new to the modern world, a federation. And that meeting at Philadelphia was very successful. Hamilton, man from the musical, was very good. In leading that, he, he tried to build on the, what he saw as the British Constitution. And they were able to persuade 10 of the states to ratify the agreed Constitution, but there were still three outliers. And the problem was how to bring them all together, how to make the changes of the Constitution that uh, the states wanted. And that led to a number of amendments being made to the Constitution. This was the only way you could get these other states to join the new United States. And the very first of those was the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech, freedom of press, 
and freedom of speech in the United States. But it was only designed at the time, the only intention was that this be used to control the new central entity being created in the United States. It wasn't going to be a general right. That only developed later. So the reason why, the reasons why the Americans have this is that their history required to get all of the states joined in, there had to be a number of restrictions on this new central government, one of which related to freedom of speech. Because they already knew. They knew. The Americans knew. They had freedom of speech. They'd inherited it from Britain. In fact, they had been the freest colonies ever seen in the world. That's why they rejected the, the attempts by Britain, for example, to tax them. In Australia, the situation was completely different. In Australia, the British, unlike the Bourbons, learned from their mistakes. The Bourbons, the Bourbons forgot nothing and understood nothing. The British did learn, and with the, with the Canadians, when they saw there was a problem in Canada, there was a major report, the, and uh, that report, the Durham report, led to the decision to create in Canada and Australia copies of what existed in Britain, the Westminster system, local self-government. The, the general view throughout all of these places was we've already got all the freedoms we want under the common law. We have effectively a constitution. It's, it's not a single document. We have a constitution which uh, Bolingbroke described in the English Civil War as that assembly of laws, customs, and institutions by which the people are agreeable to be governed. By which the people are agreeable to be governed. It was a very much a consensual arrangement. When we went to Federation, we assumed that all of this would continue. These were six virtually self-governing colonies, very free, and who'd advanced in freedom more than the mother country. For example, they'd given the vote to women. They, South Australia was the first uh, province in the world in which women could both vote and stand for parliament. And they assumed that all of this would continue. This document this constitution was only to be the arrangement whereby six self-governing independent countries would come together. It wasn't a birth certificate as it now is described. It wasn't something which needed to have any recognition, there was recognition, but have any specific recognition of the Aboriginal people because they were part of the people who made the constitution. They didn't vote outside of South Australia and later Western Australia before, before Federation, but black women, Aboriginal women in South Australia voted for Federation at a time when white women in Victoria and New South Wales couldn't vote and when white women in Britain and France and the United States couldn't vote. There you had, there you have. Uh, Aboriginal people voting. There was, no, there was no thought of any necessity to have an express guarantee. Can I 
Can I ask David a question? Because we need to get it moving. Thank you very much, Professor Flint. Um, you're president of the Australian Jewish Association, and, and the Jewish people have been subject to vicious controls, inhuman controls, murderous controls. What, what are some examples of... Or c can you briefly describe the Jewish approach to free speech, Dr Adler, and have there been occasions when restriction on speech caused harm? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, I, I want to acknowledge in the audience, and if you'd put up your hand, Susie Smead, please. Sudi is a child Holocaust survivor, a uh, good friend, and we have... <laughs> we have lived experience of what it is to create divisions in societies by race, ethnicity, religion, uh, from ancient times to modern times, and there is not a single example where this has been a positive for a society, uh, and there are numerous examples of where it has been harmful and occasionally disastrous. Um, so we see dramatic harm when divisions are made. We also see dramatic harm when free speech is limited. Now, to give you an idea of how broad the Jewish approach to free speech is, I'm going to um, quote one paragraph from a biblical source. And again, I said I'm not pushing religion, but this will show you how we can learn out uh, principles. And, and it comes from uh, Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi in Hebrew. And the Jewish people had strayed from God and had started following idolatry. So Elijah wanted to prove that who was the real God. And they set up an altar lighting competition. Now, I don't need to go into the detail, but so the, the prophets of Baal were supposed to bring down a divine fire, and of course they failed. So listen to the words recorded from Elijah. At noontime, Elijah ridiculed them. And he said, cry out in a loud voice, for he is a God. They're supposed to be calling to their gods. Perhaps he is conversing or pursuing enemies or relieving himself. Perhaps he is asleep and will awaken, mocking the false prophets of Baal. You can't do that sort of talk in Australia. You'd be hauled up before the Human Rights Commission if Elijah existed in Australia. But we see dramatic examples of free speech cause limitations causing harm in modern society. One of the most dramatic was in the UK when in a place called Rotherham there were Pakistani Muslim rape gangs who accumulated a total of 1,400 victims. The authorities at various levels were reluctant to act and intervene and there was an inquiry. Why? And Professor Alexis Jay was charged to oversee the inquiry and in the report uh, she noted that one of the reasons that social workers, police, etc. didn't act was because they didn't want to call out the pattern. They didn't want to be labelled as racist. So creating an environment where people feel reluctant to speak out for any reason uh, can be highly problematic. So 
I think that this bill, uh, as it's drafted, uh, would impose potential restrictions on so many people for so many types of expression that uh, it would be a disaster if it became law in Australia. Thank you, Dr Adler. I'll, I'll stay with you for a moment. There was much conflict regarding information and medical censorship during mm. the COVID response. Were you or was anybody else in the Jewish community affected? Um, were they involved in any specific examples? Uh, of course. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you uh, one very specific example that I, I can take credit for, I think. Now, some of you might remember something called the COVID Safe app. Yes. Uh, pro former Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced uh, right near the beginning of the pandemic that a tool was being developed which could uh, result in the restrictions being lifted. And they started promoting this COVID Safe app that everyone should download it. Uh, and something like seven million Australians did so. It was promised it would be like sunscreen if you go out in the sun, it would protect you. Now, I had a look at the way that it operated and I published an article in April 2020 in The Spectator magazine explaining why there was no way that the COVID Safe app would deliver the benefits that the government promised. Uh, I, after the event, just Google Spectator magazine David Adler and the articles will come up and you can check that out. I lay claim to being the first person in the country to explain that the COVID Safe app would not work and why it would not work. It turned out to be even worse than I predicted. So if you look at the way this uh, disinformation, misinformation bill is drafted, if it was in place early on in the COVID pandemic and I put forward comments explaining why the COVID safe app would not work, the government would say, I'm wrong. They're saying it will work. The Prime Minister announced it. I would be censored. I would be taken down under the legislation. And just like Pauline Hanson's maiden speech where uh, some things are said one day and you're vilified for it and then after time it becomes correct, so it would have occurred with that example. And I think it's a pretty dramatic example of how the misinformation, disinformation would have applied to one of my initiatives, one of my pieces of work during the pandemic and would have made it, I would have been in breach of the legislation without a doubt. Thank you, Dr Adler. Um, Professor Flint, you're very well known for not, a, not only being an eminent law, lawyer or a person in the law, a uh, lecturer in the law, a commentator in law, but also a very practical commentator on what's happening in politics and in society in general. I have a very short question. What do you see as the principal concerns today? Well, the principal concerns do revolve around freedom of speech but also, of course, the voice. But let's get back to freedom of speech because that's the subject of this conference. And uh, what we saw 
What we particularly saw during the COVID matter, while the country was afflicted by this problem, I agree entirely with what Alan Jones said. The situation very soon was clear that the way to deal with it was to just look after those who were most vulnerable and let the rest of us get on with our lives. But what happened under COVID was a, a serious breach of the power to make regulations. Regulations are laws made by the executive, usually under the authority of an act of parliament. And what we had was we didn't have the supervision which the Senate and upper houses should have because that had been taken away quite often in the legislation itself. Senators who should have known better let that go through the Senate over the years so that the Senate was disempowered. Normally, normally either chamber should be able to disallow a regulation. That had been taken away, not only in the Commonwealth but also in the States. But secondly, these were being done without proper notice. They were being brought by surprise. For example, in New South Wales, the, the Premier and the Minister suddenly announced that the building industry would be closed. Closed down. It was closed down for a, a few weeks, cost billions of dollars. The Chief Medical Officer said she didn't advise it. We still don't know where it came from and how it got onto the, not the statute books, as a regulation under the law. Those things shouldn't happen. These are in breach of our constitutional system. The, the, the second thing I'm very concerned about is the fact that social media, which is so important, is being used. The robber barons who run social media are using social media to restrict our freedom of speech. And, and the third matter is, of course, the legislation we're talking about, the, the misinformation and disinformation bill. It's extraordinary. It offends everything. The judges of our High Court decided in the 90s, it, uh, or started in the 80s, something which was obvious at the time of Federation. That is, if you're going to have a system of representative democracy where we elect our representatives and we keep in touch with them, that has to, that has to involve a significant degree of free speech. They called it freedom of political communication, a special area of free speech which is protected by the Constitution. And I'm particularly interested in it because I, I was chairman of the Press Council at the time and I persuaded them to make a submission to the High Court. It's called an amicus curiae brief, a friend of the court brief, and they, they considered our position on that. That is there in place. We do have not an express guarantee, we have something flowing from the Constitution, which the High Court unanimously said is there. This is the freedom of political communication. Now, this new bill to give ACMA these extraordinary powers has two weaknesses, two constitutional weaknesses. Firstly, it, it seriously offends our freedom of political communication because it will stop us from making comments uh, in relation to political matters. Certain people will be excluded, but it will stop that. The second thing is, we have a separation of powers in this country. It comes from England, it comes right back from the glorious revolution. The Americans took it up too, 
And this means that only courts can make decisions which are really ones about, for example, ruling on fact, whether facts breach some legislation. ACMA, the body that's going to run this and impose these multi-million dollar fines on social media if they don't do what ACMA says, is not a court. It's just an administrative agency. It's going to behave like a court. This doesn't, this doesn't reach the first grade in relation to a constitutionally sound bill. It should be knocked out. But first of all, of course, the MPs should oppose it, as one nation is. Not only should they oppose it, they should reject it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, we're running out of time because... In fact, we're out of time because we're, we're behind schedule. So even though we've, only got, we've got a few minutes left in our, in our session, uh, we need to wind it up now. So thank you very much, Dr. Adler, Professor Flint, for coming up here and sharing your wisdom and experience. <laughs>